Drug pricing is becoming a hot political issue in Washington, D.C., with polls showing widespread bipartisan support for congressional action to control the cost of new medicines broadly. While this is political red meat for the base, the reality is that price ceilings on medicines will weigh very heavily on the U.S. biotech sector, and particularly on California, which has dominated the development of new cutting-edge medicines over the last decade. I'm extremely pleased to speak to Keith Murphy, CEO and founder of Vizian Biosciences and a board member of the California Life Sciences Association, CLSA, as well as Oliver Racroix, CLSA's Vice President of Federal Government Relations. Keith and Oliver, thank you very much for your time, gents. How are you? Doing well. Thanks, Dwayne. Thank you, Dwayne. Thanks for having us. So, Keith, you're, you're the CEO of a really innovative company developing a unique patented technology allowing for the printing of human tissue. How does this process work? Oh, I'm happy to explain it a little bit. So uh, this pro- this technology was developed uh, at Organovo, which is a bioprinting company. It's a public company that I'm the executive chairman of. Um, and now it's used as well at Vizian Biosciences, where I'm CEO. And the technology is basically uh, the ability to layer cells in three dimensions and make a small tissue. Typically, it's going to be on the order of three millimeters across, half a millimeter thick, and it can replicate the features of native tissue. So if you start with living cells, you can then create a living tissue. The importance of creating a living tissue is that you can replicate native biology. If you treat the cells well and allow them to retain their normal biological function, because you're putting them together in a system that starts to work together like a cohesive tissue, they keep a lot of the native biology that they'll have had inside the human. So we often work with primary cells, cells directly from a patient or a donor, and we recreate the tissue using those cells, and we can see that it matches the native function. The way we're using it these days is in disease modeling. So we create a tissue that then shows the same function in terms of replicating the disease activity um, that the original patient who donated the cells has, and then we can study that. In- so it becomes a, a process to expedite and develop drugs more efficiently without having to go into a, a human. Well, you start there and then you'll eventually put these drugs through cl- human clinical trials. But the advantage is, I think that the latest study that came out for the period um, from about 2010 to 2020 uh, from bio showed that the success rate for drugs that enter the clinic now is about 7.9%. So over that 10-year period, um, 7.9% of the drugs that entered phase one were eventually approved. Yeah, And that's down. And the biggest gap for that is that, you know, we've found a lot of the things that we can find in animal models and, and made those into drugs. And now we're working on diseases that are more difficult. Um, we're, we're not able to see the true disease. And then we we take more shots on goal in the clinic, but they miss because you're not looking at the true disease in humans. So in an uh, area like um, oncology, where we've been able to take the tumor mass out of the body and look at that closely, you get a real good understanding of the disease and you can look at targeted therapies and things like that by studying those tumor cells. We haven't been able to do that in other disease areas. That's really what we're doing is instead of creating an animal model, we're creating a better human model that we believe is going to replicate disease accurately. And in diseases like fibrosis, which has a three-dimensional component, you're never going to see true fibrosis in a 2D layer of cells. 
um, that's where it really adds a lot of value. Oliver, from your standpoint, how many companies do you see as CLSA who are like this sort of mid-stage? How do you typify your typical member? Thanks, Dwayne. That's a, that's a great question. So the vast majority of our membership, uh, CLSA has the privilege of representing the entire cross-section of the life sciences. So um, large biopharmaceutical, household names, Amgen, Genentech, Johnson & Johnson, but also medical device companies, academic and research institutions, and then really the core of our membership are smaller to medium-sized startup companies uh, like Organovo, like Vicient. Um, and they're either companies that are pre-commercial, so they do not have a product on the market yet, or they might have one or two drugs on the market and they're still in development phases for new therapies, new medicines. Um, and so, you know, probably 50% of our membership are, are smaller companies that are still very much in the drug discovery phase, um, hoping to one day get a product to market. So Keith, a biotech company such as yours, if you're in early stage, it's um, the joke is you guys are basically a cash furnace. Uh, you, know, you have a huge cash requirement for early stage capital. What is the process for you to work with venture capitalists and, and how do you go about that getting funded? Well, really, uh, the procedure is to uh, kiss a lot of frogs, and, uh, <laughs> build the best data set you can, uh, advance your, your work and, and show great data. Uh, work with great academic scientists and others who can validate uh, that you know you're you're producing good results and that what you're doing has a value proposition. It's not only helpful to work with academics but also pharma companies to show that they have a commercial interest and in, in are seeing the positive aspects of what you do if you take it further. And then you know you take that information to venture capitalists and you work with a lot of them. I just talked to someone recently who had, an absolute tremendous exit, a more than $5 billion exit to his credit. He was the number two person wow. and it was a fast turnaround, really good return on capital. And he had taken his next thing forward. Um, and he said he had to talk to 100 VCs to get it funded. <laughs> so uh, there's no magic sauce, unfortunately. And uh, a number of us who've had successful exits, I took a company public, as I mentioned, and uh, it's still, you know, they still have to do the hard work and, and work with a lot of folks to get something funded. And, and, you know, the venture capitalists know their business. It's good to get to know them personally and, and work with the ones that, you know, you think are going to uh, favor what you're doing or have an interest. Um, but it's a lot of work and, uh, and takes time and effort to get to that capital event. How much of your time is spent being in the science and how much is spent fundraising and just trying to keep the lights on? Yeah, great question. And a lot of people don't realize this when they start to move down the path of entrepreneurship. Um, but I, uh, I, you know, you spend 65 to 100% of your time on the financing early on. <laughs> um, and, and you certainly spend 100% of a normal work week. I mean, when I, when we founded Organovo, I was, I had been, I remember in my earlier in my career at Alchemy's, I had been super impressed one week when I worked a 65 hour work week. And then I was longing <laughs> in the middle of my five years of startup, you know, pain. Uh, I was longing for working as little as 65 <laughs> hours. That would have been a treasure. That was a great week. So, you know, uh, you're spending, you know, 40 hours plus on financing and you're spending 40 hours doing something else as well or doing everything else, running the business, building the partnerships, you know, doing all this other work. So, um, and that's, you know, obviously at the, in the hardest years, it's not every year that ends up being that way. Um, so it's a lot of work. And, and I was a little stunned after reaching our first real full financing event that um, unfortunately the 
efforts required to maintain financing, think about the next financing, um, retain the relationships with your investors, never really go as low as you think they will. So uh, the minimum after you get started is probably about 35% of your time is going to be spent on it. But it's so 35 to 65% of your time, depending on the stage and what you're doing is really a good answer. So there's been a something of a change in the way the biotech sector is operated in partnership with pharma. If we look at what Henry Chesborough at Berkeley has published as far as open innovation, the idea is that increasingly the large pharma companies are no longer acting like GE making light bulbs. They're sort of doing an open partnership with multiple companies. How does a company such as yours form these partnerships? Is Vizient currently working with a lot of these large companies? And how do these agreements work in practice? They're basically, as you describe them, I mean, you know, you have to do a lot of work uh, to build the relationships and build the data sets to get to these deals. Vizient does have, you know, the opportunity for these deals. We're negotiating term sheets around these deals currently. And the the way that works is scientific due diligence first, you know, engaging with the R&D team and showing them the attractiveness of what you're doing. And then, you know, it's the business side of the discussion and the negotiation um, where both sides are, you know, thinking of comparable agreements and trying to get there, and it does tend to uh, eventually, you know, after signing a, such a deal, then you've got to deliver, as you say. They're typically going to be milestone-based arrangements, where the either upfront or the first payment uh, is going to cover your work to the next milestone, and you need to move uh, forward with the partner. They're going to have a share of the work. You're going to have a share of the work, depending on you know, what the arrangement is and what the technology is. And you're both delivering to that with your goal being to enable the whole partnership to be successful, to get to that next milestone payment and eventually move things forward all the way through the clinic, um, get success in the clinic and then get to the, the commercial milestones and royalties. Now, Oliver, California has been hugely successful, both in these open innovation partnerships, as well as bringing drugs to market. If you look at the, the pipelines internationally over the last 10 years, the overwhelming amount of drugs have come to market out of or through California in some capacity. What sort of role does CLSA play in facilitating those relationships? As a membership-based trade organization, you know, part of our role there is um, the community building aspect that is so important to biotech. And we talk a lot in California about the success of our ecosystem and even just the word ecosystem is something that I think warrants a, a quick explanation. Sure. It's the combination of the pieces that allow early stage research coming out of academia or private research institutions uh, that then hopefully, you know, with, with a little, the right magic of, of entrepreneurial dust uh, creates a young company that then to Keith's point has to go out and prove itself, not only scientifically, but uh, economically. Um, and then, you know, we, we facilitate a number of interactions for larger companies to talk to smaller companies. Um, our, our sister institute, the California Life Sciences Institute, runs a program called FAST that does a lot of entrepreneurial services to really help folks that are incredibly brilliant scientifically. You know, folks that have uh, sometimes multiple PhDs <laughs> that literally are revolutionizing medicine, but are not as familiar with the development of a business plan or human resources requirements. So, uh, you know, facilitating their entry into the business world and then uh, making sure that larger companies have the ability to uh, help, help mentor, help fund, um, sometimes help 
proof of concept development just because they have facilities that are available. So I would say it's a, it's a very important piece of what we do and, and certainly what any good trade association should do uh, as you are, you know, our, our mission at the end of the day is to really nurture, protect, and defend the life sciences ecosystem in California. And so nurturing that from the ground up is part and parcel of what we do. So picking up on that, we've been working together with you on a research project related to a legislative package that's coming out of Washington here. It's called HR3, House Bill 3, that is essentially going to force down or at least put a price ceiling on the cost of medicines based on an average price that we have internationally for six countries, mostly Europe, but also Japan. You know, we've looked at this from a standpoint of you know rolling out 125 drugs, which are included in the bill. And what we see is a reduction potentially of up to 40% of gross revenue on the sector as a whole. I mean, we're talking revenue, not profit. Keith, let's say the sector and some of your partners were impacted with a 40% hit on their revenue. What do you think would be the impact on your business and your partnership agreements that we were discussing earlier? Yeah, the, the impact is going to be potentially immediate and, and devastating. So there's a few levels that I would focus on. First of all, yes, to do these kind of licensing agreements and these opportunities, um, you know, they need to have the, the revenue and have the continuity of their business that they feel is comfort gives them the comfort to do these kind of deals. But probably um, the bigger impact is going to come from the ability to seek additional financing to even drive the work that gets us to those pharma deals. So investors, the, the type of venture investors we were talking about, uh, they very much you know, know what's going on in the space and keep their ear to the ground. So as soon as you know, you're seeing any sort of change in, in the promise of payment for innovation or reduction of drug revenues, that's going to make it less attractive a proposition to even invest in companies like ours. And so we'll, we'll have an immediate impact from that perspective. It's, it's, that's, that's the bigger thing I worry about as an entrepreneur is, you know, it requires people seeing the wins that we get in the space, the wins that we have for patients translate into wins economically for investors, and that translates into reinvestment in the space. But it's very predictable that if you have a reduction of that magnitude in the sector that investors are going to, you know, put their money elsewhere. You have yeah. generalist investors who will immediately be going elsewhere. And then you even have specialist, you know, biotech investors who are going to say, Look, really, I have to broaden what I do. I can't put it all in biotech if we have these problems. And it's the things on the edges that are going to suffer. The, the neurology, you know, yeah. you're basically going to see a complete shutdown. Anything that's had problematic development pathways in the past that doesn't have the best proposition of commercial success is going to immediately, you know, see a fleeing of capital. Yeah. From 2009 to 2014, we saw a pipeline reduction in neurological disorder, central nervous system research by 50%. And that was over, you know, a five-year period, you know, you're at 98% failure, 98.5% failure rates. Now the U S still dominates with over 60% of global clinical research and central nervous system, but we still don't have a cure for Alzheimer's or Parkinson's and we don't see one coming. Oliver, there's a challenge here. You obviously, your government relations and policy, you must understand from one side, yes, the drugs are getting expensive. How do you deal with this from a practical standpoint when you're talking to the folks on the Hill? You have to square this circle somehow. There's a reality here if we start cutting revenues at this size. Before we even get into the conversation about revenue, I think it's important to level set. And it's, you know, part and parcel of what we do is helping to educate folks about 
drug development, life sciences, uh, what that all means, early stage research. And I think where we really need to start as we're having this conversation is modern medicine has come a long way. We are incredibly better at it than we were five years ago, 10 years ago, 20 years ago. And with that improvement in our ability to deliver medicine, to custom tailor medicine for particular diseases, there's a cost associated with it only because modern medicine is more expensive than old medicine. I mean, that's just a fact of life. We, we are better at diagnosis. We are better at treatment. We are better at managing the course of therapy over the, the a patient's life. And in many cases, we are developing cures for diseases that used to be chronically treated diseases. Um, hepatitis C is one of those. And so how we balance the conversation with policymakers is really to talk about risk. Um, there are many, many industries that always talk about we're the most heavily regulated, we're the most heavily this, we're the most heavily that. Um, the life sciences, biotech are probably the most, the riskiest endeavor only because of how statistically challenging it is to develop a drug, bring it to market, make a return on that investment. And to Keith's point, that investment is not guaranteed. The more you increase the risk, the less people are going to gamble on the development of new medicine. And that is even more true for rare diseases where you have a much smaller patient population, diseases where your potential return on that investment is smaller. And so as you increase the risk, you will see us going backwards rather than forwards. You will see folks making safer investments into maybe the development of drugs that are marginally better than what's already on the market, rather than the moonshots, which is where we should be going, curing cancer, curing Alzheimer's, uh, finding you know, solutions to the 7,000 rare diseases that exist in the world today. It's all about balancing that risk. And, you know, policymakers, I think, really need to understand, again, that, that life cycle ecosystem of how it all works. And the fact that, again, modern medicine, you know, won't come to a screeching halt. But we have to balance when, when the president, when the White House, when folks talk about cancer moonshots and big, bold ideas, especially in light of the pandemic that we're hopefully on, on the path to recovery from, we can't stop that innovation. And that innovation is really fueled by the ability to take that risk with at least a reasonable assumption that you can, you can mitigate that risk and, and hopefully make a return on that investment. Uh, Oliver, you make a lot of really good points here. One of the key ones is about the idea that we're doing more targeting. If you look at some of the cancer treatments, particularly the CAR-T treatments, your maximum population in acute lymphoblastic leukemia for the current licensing is 700 patients a year. Keith, is it inevitable that we're going to be getting smaller and smaller in our indication pathway, or are you going to see more large blockbusters? Is the science leading us to the smaller and smaller end? Well, I think you know, we're slightly headed that way. I think that the natural trend is going to be to enable more targeted drugs, but it, it, it remains, that's dependent on, you know, the existing economic structure remaining in place, right? Because, sure. you know, we need to have the ability to invest broadly to get to those novel, novel drugs. But I think to, to do the science that we need to do 
to find the to find the more targeted therapies, you know, we need to have broad support for the sector and keep that in place. And then you'll see that progress. And that's obviously been the case in in the cancer indications. But each one, right, is it's a different investment paradigm because it's a, a investment for a smaller market um, with a slightly better chance of success because it's targeted, perhaps. If you undermine the uh, ability to pay for innovation overall, then it's only going to be blockbusters that get invested right. in, right? People are only going to try to solve big, big problems. And you're going to see a trend, I would say, away from targeted therapies. Um, but our natural trend will be towards more targeted therapies. And that's, for example, the kind of work we're trying to do at Vizient and Organovo. You know, it, it lends itself to that because we're studying the disease more closely and, and we can find um, biomarkers and things like that that can enable us to invest productively in a drug that might otherwise not be brought forward and commercialized because we can actually identify the patients that it's going to potentially work in and do a, a less costly clinical paradigm. If we had um, a situation where we lost 40% of the revenue, we're not seeing a linear reduction of 40% less medicines. We're going to become like the Hollywood film industry. We're going to get a lot more Marvel comics films and we're going to lose a lot more of the small personal films. And I think that's a really key point. Can you, I, I, when an investor looks at a, a deal and whether or not they're going to invest in something, they just do that basic math that you would expect them to do. You know, what's the potential commercial payback from this and what's the chance of success. And if you think about a pediatric indication, <laughs> right. As a good example of something, it's just a smaller population, not just in their physical stature, right? <laughs> it's in smaller numbers. And so, and so, you know, it's harder to make that investment, which is why the government is trying to, you know, pursue ways to stimulate those types of investments. But that's the example of something that if you think about 40% of the revenues going away, you're going to have to start paying people $1 billion or $2 billion bounties to get them to come near those drugs. It's just it's just a basic you know return on investment calculation that an investor is going to do, and with forty percent of the revenues, you're also talking about the factor that you brought into the discussion here, Dwayne, which is that pharma doesn't have as much you know free revenue to do deals with right. anymore either, right? Just immediately that impact of their less their lesser commercial success, meaning they have less less capital, less funding to work with and, and plow back into the sector, and and the other factor there is the investors, right? So I think. We have a very um, a very virtuous cycle that's going on, a virtuous return of those investments from investors. When biotech investors have success today, they reinvest in biotech, and it's been going on for you know many decades now, and it's growing the sector dramatically. And we're continuing to see the returns on investment. This is something that the reason we have this rapid acceleration of new therapies, the reason we have. COVID-19 vaccines from a completely novel technology that was not being used in any other therapy, but was being invested in because of its promise. The reason we were able to turn that around in six to 12 months and get, a vac get vaccines on the market is because of this growing circle we have of reinvestment and, and, and returns. And so, you know, we'll give away all of that if we if we do the wrong things in terms of public policy. It's really important what you just said about the vaccines, because if you look at how they were approved, and you're right, they came to market in seven months. This was an adaptive pathway. This was an accelerated approval. What would be the impact to a smaller biotech company such as yourself, Keith, if we could actually implement an adaptive pathway as a matter of course, as opposed to just there's emergency, we need these drugs now? Why don't we do this all the time? It's a great question. And, and one way to think about I th the way I think about the impact of that is, is almost that you 
the you reduce the cost of of the clinical because you are allowing some commercial activity along the way, right? So you're allowing people to get um, started and then continue to prove themselves. Um, you know, another way to do the same thing would also be just, I mean, we invest so much in NIH basic research, you could offset the costs of clinical trials for companies as well, right? We we require that the sponsor basically be paying for all of the clinical trial costs, but other countries in certain settings, at least, you know, will will continue, will help fund that, especially in Japan in a regenerative medicine setting, which where they do adaptive licensing, but um, they also allow an insurer to cover the costs of that so that you're clinical trial costs go down. So I think these are basically all ways I think of, of government sharing the risk with the, with the pharma sponsor, with the company that's biotech company that's sponsoring the, the clinical trials to reduce the, you know, the commercial risk that the company has to take the upfront investment risk can be deferred, I think. And that's, it's a smart way to go. It can, it would help a lot more therapies get out. Oliver, from your conversations, is, is anything being discussed along this lines? Cause right now all we're getting is a big stick on pricing. There's not even a discussion on the quality and the uh, efficacy of the drugs. I mean, we're not even caring if they're cost effective. I mean, it's just really, this is expensive. It's bad. It's very binary and somewhat archaic mentality. Is there any opportunity to try and change some regulatory approaches to maybe look at something more adaptive and more flexible? I think so, Dwayne. And, you know, I think you just hit the nail on the head sometimes of the debates around public policy. We like to look at things through very black and white lenses only because it's easier to generate a splashy headline if you look at things that way. But if if we're talking about legitimately reforming the healthcare delivery system, and regulatory reform is one of those. Conversation around value should certainly be at the center of that. Um, but but more importantly, there should be, you know, holistic conversations around how we better deliver healthcare to the patients that need it the most in an affordable manner that makes it accessible and equitable. Um, and and that really should be the premise of this whole conversation, right? How do we deliver on the promise that we all make? Because I, I say this often and I'll say it again, uh, fundamentally speaking, we, the manufacturers, the doctors, the hospitals, the providers, everybody within the healthcare delivery system will tell you that they have the same objective to deliver quality, affordable healthcare to the patients that need it the most. Great. Let's put that at the center of the conversation and then rebuild a healthcare delivery system that actually does something for the patient. If we are only talking about black and white issues in a vacuum, and I'll take drug pricing as an example, HR3 does not materially reduce the price of a drug paid by the patient at the pharmacy counter. It just doesn't. It takes away a lot of the innovation that could potentially provide value to the system, right? And common example, and and I know it's a stretch, but let's say for the sake of the argument, we were able to develop a drug that cured diabetes. If we eradicate diabetes as a chronic condition, as a chronic disease, what does that save the overall healthcare delivery system? What does that save in emergency room costs when somebody goes into diabetic shock and ends up at the ER? What does it do for folks that are better able to manage their their disease? The common joke, healthcare is complicated. Well, yeah, it, it should be. And so when we're looking at things through very narrow lenses, we end up with very narrow solutions to challenging problems. And uh, regulatory reform, the the benefit, if you will, of the COVID pandemic is 
a lot of the things we talked about for a long time, better access to digital therapy, better use of digital health, more telemedicine, the pandemic sort of blew the lid off of all of the reservations that we as a society had. Regulatory reform is part of that. I think the FDA, CDC, a lot of the government agencies have done a much better job of responding because they had to. Well, they did around COVID, uh, Oliver, that's no question. But is that going to then translate into some of the things like you're talking about, like a cure for diabetes? I mean, I don't want to be a wet blanket, but I'll be rhetorical here just because I can. If we look at, say, PCSK9, the, you know, the LDL-lowering cholesterol drugs, those were 20, 25% better than Lipitor or you know the cl- those class of statins that were now generic. But the fact is, statins now are basically free. And the PCSK9s were tens of thousands of dollars. And even though they were better, they're commercially failing. So my argument to you right now, the way the system is working, unfortunately, even if we come up with a cure, a six-month cure or a year cure for a gene therapy that's an injectable, people are going to go, yeah, but insulin's so much cheaper. Well, because again, you're looking at it through a black and white lens of price, not value. Correct. We, right? We, we should be talking about value. Look at the controversy over the hepatitis C drugs that you mentioned earlier. Yeah, I remember the Time Magazine, the $1,000 pill. What no one was talking about is if you didn't use that $1,000 pill, the NPV, the 10-year risk of the patient that came into that pipeline was over $200,000 by the time you incorporated liver transplants. But no one was looking at the total cost. All they were concerned with was this laser focus on the rhetorical $1,000 pill, which was a nonsense argument. Yeah. And let's be realistic. No one's paying 1000 bucks now for a pill. No, that's, that's absolutely right. Well, that's the, but that's the challenge. And, and Oliver touched on it too. It's, it's, it's affordability and then the value argument and the, you know, the perverse incentives in the system, right? And, and our opportunity, I guess, is to help change the regulatory environment and affect all of those. So Oliver's dead on, you know, if a patient has a, a $50,000 a year therapy uh, and their deductible uh, is $5,000 in their insurance plan, you know, with their co-pays adding up as they get that drug, you know, they're, they're going to hit their deductible cap and that's really what they're saying they can't afford. Yeah. But if you reduce the cost of that drug by half and it costs $25,000 a year, they still have that same deductible out of pocket, 5,000 that they can't afford. Correct. So you haven't done anything to affect whether or not a patient can afford that. Right. And it makes no sense to have an, a, a medical system, a healthcare system where someone who, when they get a drug that might cost $50,000, but as you point out, could easily save our, our overall healthcare system, $200,000 over the four years following that. Why are we creating disincentives for that patient to choose to get that drug? It doesn't make any sense. So we really have to address some of these affordability issues. The first of which is certainly the the copay. Um, you know, it's it, it it had its it had its logic, but I think it's also had its day, and we really need to fundamentally change things like that that affect affordability. You know, five percent on a ten thousand dollar drug wasn't too bad, but you know, five percent on a four hundred thousand dollar CAR T that's a whole nother kettle of fish. Mm-hmm. And so these are the issues we're having now. But yet, just to, to bring this back home, though, there was an agreement that the U.S. should lead and dominate the biotech sector. And this was a public policy. The U.S. government decided they wanted to do this around biotech in 2003, and it's been hugely successful. Oliver, how did we move from we want to lead to we don't care if we kill it? Wow. Um, <laughs> I mean, great question, you know, uh, and, and you're spot on, Dwayne. You know, in, in the 1980s, um, the U.S. lagged behind, and um, you know more drugs are now produced in the U.S. than in the five next closest major countries, including Germany, France, Japan. Um, you know, major major developed nations. 
Um, that was a choice. That was a choice that we are now forgetting. Um, I, I think, quite frankly, too many people take innovation for granted. Um, you know, and it could be a factor that nowadays it's impossible to turn on the TV and not hear the word innovation. <laughs> the next best cell phone is innovative. Uh, the you know softer brand of toilet paper is innovative, and everything is innovative. Where where I think we need to really remind folks is that for technical sciences like the life sciences, like aerospace, like computer technology. The U.S. is the global leader for a reason. There are competitors that are nipping at our heels. If we squander that opportunity, that innovation will go elsewhere. It doesn't always resonate. I think there are some within the majority party that understand that argument, but it's it's easy to take it for granted because we've been a national, a global leader for 15, 20 years now. Um, and so the argument that if you break it, it's not easy to put it back together sometimes it's hard for people to understand because they just think we're always going to be there. So they think it's not going to impact and you guys will just... Well, you know, there's this perception that this industry will just keep motoring on and that there's somehow some nefarious, you know, backroom deals that are keeping things overly inflated. And Hmm. it's the finger pointing mentality of you good, you bad, this like... This system is way too complicated for us to to keep just pointing fingers. And if we're going to talk about reform, if we're going to talk about value, if we're going to talk about maintaining global leadership in innovation, we need to talk about a whole slew of things. The cost and value of medicine is one, but also things like STEM education, things like career and workforce development, things like retraining folks as we move away from certain industries. You know, the life sciences are a great example. You biofuels, synthetic and renewable materials, climate change research, the application of biotechnology to the world around us is so much more than just human medicine, animal medicine, agriculture. I mean, there's a ton. When we're talking about losing our supremacy in innovation, we're talking about losing all of that. And I think that's starting to be an argument that folks in the majority party understand where, okay, maybe you're willing to give up the newest and greatest cancer therapy, but are you willing to give up synthetic and renewable materials that, you know, decreases uh, methane emissions or decreases greenhouse gas emissions? So, you know, it's all a matter of perspective, I guess. I think as an industry, you know, we have an opportunity, but a risk here. And we're, we're playing defense against HR3, and that's entirely appropriate, because as we're talking about, it would be devastating on innovation. But we have to self-reflect a little bit and understand that we've contributed to that by only playing defense for so long. You, you gestured backwards at some of the great bargains that were struck that, that created our industry and helped it. Right. Um, you go back to Hatch-Waxman. That's a good example. By Dole as well. By Dole, Hatch-Waxman, right? We need the next version of that. And we need to be productive in the discussion of, of reaching that agreement, recognizing that some of the practices that we followed, which have, you know, certainly, lev- you know, created potentially higher revenue, but with some short-term thinking, are also undermining our ability to avoid the pressure around drug pricing by keeping the affordability issue, which is very real out there. If you look at Patch Waxman, for example, and I think Peter Kolchinsky brought this into to nice relief that the, the promise of Hatch Waxman was, hey, there were plenty of legacy drugs that were making a lot of money, but if we allowed them to go generic, we would be forced to innovate and then the drugs would become generic on a time scale. And that's worked really, really well to everyone's benefit. Companies were did become much more innovative 
patients have benefited tremendously. And then, then the overall environment has led to a wide set of generic drugs after an initial innovative you know, payback period, 15 years or so. Well, with the biotech drugs, we don't have that as much because it's harder to replicate those. And it truly is scientifically harder. I believe in that. I worked at Amgen for 10 years. I saw it in action. It's harder to do. Even internally, it was hard to move sites and change technologies and keep producing the drugs effectively. So it's a real thing, but we need to have some real thinking about how to assure affordability when we run our industry very successfully on the logic that with an 8% chance of success, if we reach 80% of the market, we're going to get paid back. That's great. But we're forgetting that other 20% of the market because we don't need them to make the economics work. Right. So I think we need to be productive in these larger discussions. We need to really change the narrative. And this, the opportunity I mentioned is that we have this global pandemic and we've been a huge part of the solution. Everything we're mentioning in terms of the speed to vaccines, um, you know, if you look at the fact that the companies that were productive in engaging economically and driving economically the vaccine manufacturers and, and, our, and researchers to get successfully to the conclusion of the clinical trials are now reaping the rewards for that. And the companies that, and I'm sorry, the countries that took the tack of, of really negotiating on price, you know, have suffered, you know, that's, that's everything we're talking about in a nutshell. And we can leverage these larger narratives to our benefit. And I'd love to pick up on that because that's 100% correct. Europe decided they wanted to put in a price ceiling, $12 maximum price, and they negotiated and negotiated and negotiated. And now if you look at the access issue, and, and this just goes to basic economics, if you put in a price ceiling, you will not fulfill the demand curve. Belgium, the country where I live, you know, half of the time, 833 days right now to vaccinate the entire population with one shot. And that's 9 million people. That's, you know, a suburb of Los Angeles, France or Germany. There are 500 days. Why did we get here? Um, we haven't solved the affordability issue. And, and even pharma owns a part of that or our industry owns a part of that. And, and by, by not being willing to really address the issue and just playing defense, you know, we need to get greater access to our medications, to, to more people. We need to be part of that solution. The insurance copay is a big part of that. If we were successful in moving forward a pro proposals that, that, you know, reduced these, these access through the copays, um, you know, the, the rhetoric would be substantially reduced on drug pricing because the constituents of all of our policymakers wouldn't be in their ears all the time about how they can't get drugs, right? If we didn't follow practices, like if you think about, let's, I'm not, I don't want to call out anyone in particular specifically, but let's think about an area where um, there was a longstanding free, cheap, generic option that had evolved and people came up with better, longer lasting solutions, um, but then only chose to sell those because everyone converts to that higher value one and it's going to help their bottom line and stop selling the cheaper versions for the arm of the market that really needs it. Basically, that's leaving 5% of patients without access to some drug that they really need. And so it creates loud voices that are, that are rightfully saying they don't have access to needed drugs. And so, you know, we have to be thoughtful about what are the mechanisms that, you know, we, we help with affordability issues um, while we still demand appropriately and seek payment for innovation. Oliver, what are the biggest challenges or opportunities that you see in the next three to five years? Obviously, we've been talking about HR3, which is a huge one. Do you think it's going to remain pricing or is there something else on the horizon that um, we should be taking on board? I mean, I think the opportunity is healthcare reform in a meaningful way. 
that provides access to medicine equitably in a country that doesn't always do that. And so the opportunity, the COVID pandemic, I think the opportunity and the fact that the general population has a much better appreciation for healthcare delivery, big national crises like the development of a vaccine from a life sciences industry, we have the opportunity to, again, remind folks of the value. Keith touched on it. I'm going to take a slightly stronger stand. We, we have to decry bad actors because we could point the finger at other people and this and that. We've got some on our end too. We've got to really re-engage the conversation around value for the patients. And if we are going to meaningfully reform healthcare, we've got to have a conversation with every other healthcare delivery player, the hospitals, the doctors, the insurers, uh, the government, right? Government's the, the largest purchaser of healthcare. We've got to take a holistic look at all of that. And so my hope is that the, the pandemic, the conversations in and around Congress, the leadership at the White House, um, that we set an aggressive agenda and then tie that into some of the healthcare equity issues that always been around, but I think folks are more aware of them now. And, and really do some meaningful reform rather than just pointing the finger because we've been doing that for 15 years and it's not working. Thanks, Oliver. Keith, from your perspective, what do you think we need to do next three to five years to deal with some of the big issues? Do you think it's just going to be pricing or what else could we do? Well, I think that the idea of introducing a better capturing of the value we bring to the system, right? And it's not, that not only helps you, you know, defend the cost of innovation and get that paid for, it helps you develop drugs that you might not otherwise develop, right? So cures, things like that. You know, when we bring value to the system, we should be appropriately rewarded. I think we have to spotlight some of the some of the challenges that are out there in the current system and, and make sure in this larger discussion that those are perceived. Again, one of the reasons, you know, that you're not going to get support for drugs at a certain stage is that, you know, someone might be happy to um, not pay for a drug that's highly effective for the healthcare and long-term costs of a patient who's 60 because they're not going to have that patient on their healthcare plan in five years. They're going to hand them off to the government. Policymakers should see those things very clearly and understand that we have to be part of that. But then I think calling out bad actors and, and really setting some ground rules uh, like Oliver states is very important. And coming to the table and saying, I think this was a, a few years ago at Bio, they had a homage to Henri Termir, the, the great leader of Genzyme. He said that the number one thing we have to do is, you know, retain payment for innovation. So that has to be the North Star. We have to say, look, a lot of these other things where we get some additional revenue for the drug past its first 15 years by extending patents, things like that, you know, those are not the core. So where can we truly give up? some value uh, for the long-term legacy revenue, but you know, by retaining the value of being paid for innovation, which is what we want to be doing anyway. I don't want to be uh, you know, the CEO of a company whose job is to exploit the long-term revenue of a drug that's been on the market for 25 years. And, and that's not what any of us got into this for. You know, we want to be bringing new therapies to patients. So we need to focus on what structure allows us to do that most effectively. Keith Murphy, Oliver Roqua, thank you very much, gentlemen. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you for your time this afternoon. Thanks very much. Dwayne, thank you. Keith, thank you. Thanks, Oliver. Thanks, Dwayne. Take care. This Vital Health podcast has been brought to you by Pharma CCX. 
an independent third-party technology platform focused on improving patient outcomes. They help both sides of the negotiation reach access agreements more efficiently so that patients can get the complex therapies, including combination oncology, they need to survive. That's Pharma CCX.